Looking good, looking good. Like you know we should. Looking good today. You're listening to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast. We're the five going strong. We can do no wrong. We're looking good today. We're looking good. Welcome to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast, episode number 13. Scott Morrison along with the coach, Iron Mike. Mike, how are we doing this week? Doing really well, Scott. Thank you very much, even though it's number 13. Lucky or unlucky? Oh, I think it's lucky. My sister, my youngest sister, was born on Friday the 13th, so I've always thought the 13 was a good, lucky family number for sure. So players, and, uh, and I'm sure coaches too, all have their little rituals and superstitions. What were yours? I definitely had a lot of rituals and, uh, and some superstitions. Early in my career in the NHL, I drove uh, Joe Cadillac crazy, who was our, our uh, assistant on the road for travel and uh, secretary on the road. So if we had lost the game on the road and we stayed at a certain hotel, I would ask him to change hotels. And uh, that only went on for about... Uh, Oh, three or four months. I said, oh, forget it. It's too much a problem for you, Joel. So I'll have to think of something else. But I did have a lot of routines. Uh, if we were going well and we could duplicate certain uh, parts of our travel schedule, leave at the same time, have the bus arrive at the same time, have the team meetings at the same time. I had a lot of routines, a lot of uh, scheduling that were focused on routine uh, and I think it was a consistent way of, of the players having some expectation because, as you know, I tried to keep them on edge quite often, but that was one thing they could certainly rely on. It was a, a strict routine that was pretty much regimented and, and set at a schedule. And if the routine got messed up, how did that how affect you? Actually, it didn't because it didn't happen very often. From time to time, we had a couple of snowstorms and we couldn't travel by Playing, for example, just going back to a New York away game in Montreal, we had to end up jumping on a bus and driving through a a snowstorm. And actually worked out pretty well. It was kind of a team bonding thing. We're up most of the night and stopping at service stations to get snacks. And and the guys loved it. They had great conversations. And it was so out of the norm that uh, they actually had fun with it. And we went in and we, we actually won the game in Montreal with very little sleep. So... Uh, from time to time, you had to adjust, but for the most part, uh, we were very fortunate and the routines would stay on schedule, And particularly when you're using airplanes and flying from uh, city to city and, and uh, moving around that way. Yeah, make the best of it. So last week, we talked about the mentors in uh, your coaching career, Scotty Bowman, Roger Nielsen, Gary Green, uh, Tom Watt, who is, as I mentioned, is going into the Ontario Sports Hall of Fame this year uh and then we we talked about your coaching staff in philadelphia and so let's pick it up from there uh 1984-85 you take over as coach of the the new york rangers at uh, a young age 35 philadelphia philadelphia sorry yes yep. 35 years old yes uh uh they'd come off three consecutive uh, years without winning a playoff game and uh, I went in there as a very young coach. Uh, had coached in the American League and coached in junior hockey and, of course, coached University of Toronto. But from the University of Toronto championship team, I went to Philadelphia as a very young coach. 
And when you mentioned our coaching staff, well, the coaching staff was very young as well, uh, all around the same age, which made it fun. At the same time, uh, we had the youngest team in pro sports. So there was a relationship uh, between the, the, the youth of the coaching staff and the youth of the team. Mark Cow was a, our oldest player, 29 years old, and I was 35. I'm sorry, Dvorak was a little bit older, but he wasn't uh, playing as much. But Mark, the most significant player, was 29. So we, we were able to come together as a team and then uh, meet ex, ex, expectations and went beyond expectations. Uh, Mr. Snyder said that he'd kick my, uh, not kick my butt, kiss my butt at center ice if we made the playoffs. Of course, we won the President's <laughs> Trophy, uh, which delighted him, and then had the great run in the playoffs. Uh, uh, the first challenge was to beat the, the Islanders, who had five consecutive trips to the Stanley Cup finals, winning four of them, and Al Arbor, of course, uh, legendary coach and the team that they had to defeat them and then moving on and, and going to the finals against the, the juggernaut in Edmonton. Uh, I think that uh, what we found out about our team that year is that uh, uh, we gained a lot of experience for a young group of players. But when we got up against the Oilers, uh, we were probably, well, we were definitely mismatched. They won in five. Uh, and at the same time, um, we, we learned a lot about preparation, travel. Uh, I changed the travel routine and that, that led to significant difference going from East to West or West to East, as we learned more about how it would impact the players and, and how that would affect their performance levels. So I think that we learned a lot of, as a group, uh, certainly, uh, uh, for all of us, was exciting. The great thing, Scott, when you're playing in the Final Four, and that's up now in the National Hockey League, when that final series is won, and you've won, and you look up at the scoreboard, you realize there's only going to be one team from each conference announced and one game announced on the score, on the score screen, on the big screens in the, in the stadium. No out-of-town scores anymore. So that was quite exciting, to say the least, that we're going to go to the finals. It was something I remember impacted my career, but also your sense of success that, yeah, we're going to the finals, guy. This is amazing. So it was exciting for us, all of us as a young coaching staff and certainly for the young players, they never expected to be able to do that. In fact, there was one point in the Quebec series in the final four where I think they were thinking, well, we've had enough, Mike. I mean, nobody expected us to get to the final four. No, I said, no, I'm not letting you off the hook now. We're going to the finals. And that's when I, jumped up on the table in the middle of the dressing room in Quebec City and, and uh, uh, really, uh, I think, emphasized to them that they were capable of doing this and that we are going to do it. We're going to do it right now in this next period. We went out, won the next period, and we won the series. So it was an interesting trip, though, to be uh, in, in that position so quickly in my career. I was going to say, how, how difficult was that jump to go from you know, you've gone from university junior, the American League with Rochester. How, how difficult was it to make that jump at that at that age and not be an assistant coach or just? Yeah, I've never I've never been an assistant coach except for a couple of Team Canada projects, where I was the assistant coach with Jacques Lemaire to Dave King, and that was for the junior national team at one time. I had also coached the the junior national team in Finland with Peterborough as the 
the anchor team. But when that format changed, uh, I was invited to be an assistant coach with Jacques Lemaire one summer for Dave King. But that being said, I think the experience in the American League really helped because uh, you're dealing with pros, and I had a lot of pros uh, that had, had some experience in the NHL. Lambert comes to, to mind as an example, but many players had spent a lot of time in the NHL and then having the experience of dealing with them and dealing with men and dealing with people uh, that were playing hockey for a livelihood. It's different than a university group and certainly different than a junior group. But when, you, when you're dealing with men that depend on, on their success or, or the team's success uh, for the advancement of their career and or their livelihood, uh, you learn there's different nuances. Dealing with an 80-game schedule, which was quite different than university schedule. We played 50-some-odd games at the University of Toronto, and I believe uh, our schedule in Peterborough at the time was 68 games. But going and having some success at those levels as well in in Peterborough, going to the Memorial Cup, winning the Calder Cup, winning the University Cup, that all helped prepare me, along with the mentors that we mentioned in our last podcast, to be prepared for this challenge. And of course, uh, when I did get there, I was very confident in my skill set and my ability, maybe, maybe even naively, but uh, I was certainly, in my mind, ready for it. And of course, the Flyers thought I was ready for it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have offered me the job. So, and then we had a success, which always winning begets winning. We started out slowly, but we got uh, increasingly better as the season progressed. We learned more about ourselves as a team. We learned more about uh, uh, how to insert younger players. We had still had two players that were junior eligibility and Smith and Zezel. And then of course, a few of them just coming out of junior. There were 21 like talk at 20 year olds. So uh, uh, that was anchored by the very experienced group of, of players at 26 years of age up front. Poulin, Prop, and Kerr, our top line, were all the same age, 26. Uh, Hal McCrimmon logged the most ice time. As I said, Mark was 29. I think uh, uh, the Beast was about 26 as well. And at Lindbergh, he was young as well, our, our famous Vesna Trophy winner, and that always helps, Scott, when you got a Vesna Trophy winner in the net. But he had struggled previously uh, to my arrival in Philadelphia, and I told you about the meeting I had with him, the very first meeting in July, and I said, no matter what, Pelle, you're our number one goalie. He said, really? How's that? I said, because I played against you in the, in the Calder Cup final in, when you are in Maine, and I saw what an excellent goalie where he said, oh, Mike, that's all I had to hear. So that's really built the psyche of the team and the personality team. We alluded to it before, but Bobby Clark saying we have to revitalize the personality and we did and became hard nosed, competitive fit team and hard to play against. And, and I think that really helped uh, build all the building blocks that we needed to, to be successful that year. And then of course, go to the finals. It's an almost a, a perfect storm that you being a young coach had so many young players. I think that was part of maybe the rationale that they, they selected a young coach because they knew they'd have a very young, at least they anticipated the, I don't know if they anticipated that Billy Barber couldn't play any more Hall of Famer. Uh, certainly uh, Bobby Clark just retired and, and then Daryl Sittler, another Hall of Famer, was excited actually about playing for us. I built a real strong relationship with him in training camp, but uh, 
he was eventually traded before the season for Murray Craven in Detroit. But I, I think there was a correlation, definitely. And, and a, the group as a whole, the coaching staff, were all around the same age, 34, 35, 36 years old. And they are, you know, we could relate to each other pretty well. If you look at the, the coaches in the Stanley Cup final, I believe they're all over 50. And, and uh, Rick Bonas, I think, is around 65 or 66. So uh, a different, maybe a different uh, group of players, maybe older players now are forming the core. Uh, but back then, even Edmonton, you know, that was a young group. Wayne was, when in 85, Wayne was, I believe, uh, 24 years old. So, and Mark was the same age. So, at Coffee, all that group, they had a really young team too. And I don't know, I think Slats is four or five years older than me, but they had a young coach as well and seemed to be part of the trend and, 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 and part of what was going on in the league at that time. At least there was a transition. As you know, there's always a trending in the league and, and one team sees a successful solution uh, and then they all go and try to follow it or duplicate it or mimic it or find the same formula. So it's, it was an interesting, interesting transition, certainly in my career. Yeah, it's a copycat league, that's for sure. There it is. Ever. Um, well, let's talk about, how, go through the hiring process. How did that all come together? Well, that was interesting. Uh, Bobby Clark wasn't the GM yet, but uh, Gary Darling, who was their chief scout, was the scout uh, for them while I was in Peterborough, and he got to know me and watched my work in Peterborough. And Gary recommended to the Snyders, Mr. Snyder and Jay Snyder, that they interview this fellow who just won the championship. He won the American League and then won the, the uh, University Cup, the Calder Cup. He said, we should interview him because I saw his work in Peterborough. I went to the Memorial Cup and, and that's the fellow that opened the door for me. And, and then it was interesting. Uh, the, the Snyder family had a relationship with the Wharton School of Business. And the Wharton School of Business uh, produced a questionnaire that had to be uh, answered by the candidates. And as soon as I saw that, I had to write a paper and I said, there's not going to be very many, unfortunately, there's not going to be very many coaches that will be able to, to answer this um, questionnaire and, and put it in a thesis, in an essay form. It was about 20 pages long. And, uh, and fortunately for me, I'd gone to university and was accustomed to that type of thing. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a paper that uh, was extremely well-written well-delivered, even though I'm saying that. And uh, uh, Bobby Clark, when he became the manager, read it and then was very impressed, interviewed me on a couple of occasions and then offered me the job. So then you had to go through the, the negotiations of the contract, which was Rob Campbell was involved and I asked him to excuse himself from the room because I just wanted an opportunity to try to coach in the league. And they weren't offering much money at the time $5,000 more than the University of Toronto was paying me. And my, uh, my father-in-law said that you're, it's ridiculous because he came from and had very academic children. One, one of his daughters was the uh, chairman of the English department at the University of Calgary. And his, and his son was the dean of dentistry and still is at University of Toronto. And my wife is an academic. And he, he says, you got the best school in the world paying. Why would you leave? I said, I want a chance to coach pro. So, 
I went for $80,000 to Clarkie, but uh, that was an interesting process. And, you know, we, we got lucky, uh, things fell into place. We had some success and then they renewed my contract very quickly. The story about the Mercedes presenting me with a Mercedes coupe because we went to the Stanley Cup finals unexpectedly from Mr. Snyder. And then of course, uh, uh, we segued into the two years later uh, with the unfortunate tragedy of losing our Vezina goalie in, in Pelly Limburg to the tragic accident, but replacing him. And again, Bobby Clark was a great manager. He, he, uh, we went and I, and when Pelly was killed, I went to uh, uh, Hershey to recruit and look at Ronnie Hextall and Bob said, he's too, he's too young yet. He's not ready. We'll wait for the rest of the year. And of course, Hexy goes to the finals and then he, he was ready. We brought him up and then 87 was a different year for us because of uh, Hexy and his skill set as a rookie comes in and, and, and replaces uh, the status of Pelly Lindbergh and Nett. So that's a long-winded answer to how the process went. But uh, sometimes you have to be very fortunate as well. Let's talk about some of the personnel on that 84-85 team, starting with your captain, Dave Poulin. Dave Poulin was a very bright guy and, again, a free agent that was recruited and brought to the team by Ted Sater, my assistant coach, who was coaching in Sweden, and Dave was playing there. And he said, this fellow can play in the NHL. He arrived, and he, he built a great relationship as a young player with Bob Clark and Bob Clark recognized that he had leadership skills and, and he was named team captain uh, with the aspect of a possibility of Daryl Sittler being the captain. But when Daryl was traded, then Clarkie recommended Dave and we made Dave the captain. And, uh, I know that he talked to many people about that transition being in the room and trying to figure out how to be a captain with Mark Howell in there and Brad McCrim. And they had great voices in the room and Brian Propp and Tim Kerr as the older players, but uh, Dave, very bright individual and a great com communicator. So, and I think he was a great uh, facilitator for myself because uh, we both had uh, academic backgrounds. We both had played university hockey. He was at Notre Dame uh, in the United States and then went on to Europe. And so there was, uh, you know, we had great chemistry though with the entire group. And it's always starts with the people in your leadership group. And Dave was a big part of it. So you talk about that group, talk about Brad McCrimmon, the late Brad, sadly. Yeah, he, he was great in the room because some of the younger players as I got more strict and, and I, I don't think I was, I was quite a good teacher to start with and probably continue to be a good teacher. But the emphasis of, of uh, moving the team to a different level in my mind and, and uh, John Tortorella just said it in this last playoff run that they had that it's, it's the aspect of your mental preparation. So I focused, I had a great, great staff to deal with all the details of systems and even now, as, as uh, teams uh, prepare and they have all the, the different uh, tools to use, uh, uh, they still have to rely on the mental preparation part of it. Ultimately, I think, to get to the, to the, the highest level of achievement. So uh, Brad McCrimmon 
uh, was very instrumental um, in the dress room. He was, they called him the Sarge, and uh, he had a big influence on the young players because when they would get a little bit upset, you know, he said, yeah, he's tough, but he knows what the hell he's doing. So it's just listen, do what you're told. So he was a great ally of mine. And when he got traded, it was tough on the team uh, because he had a big, big voice in the room as well. And uh, a gruff voice that uh, was well-respected. So, uh, you know, analytics uh, and all the different aspects of video and everything you want to talk about. But the leadership group was really instrumental in directing the team from within. As a coach, you, you can give them all the information you want and, and try to set a, a tone in terms of the mental skills that you develop, mental toughness. But when it comes down to it, uh, the jockey's only as good as a great horse. And uh, I was fortunate they came together as a, as a group because, you know, you have to ride one and the, the one has to become a whole. And uh, that's the trick of, of, of building a team and putting a team together. And Mark, how? Mark was a quiet leader, very, very quiet, but he was Mark Howe. And the great thing about having Mark around was Gordy would come around and, and the old Voorhees practice facility. I had a little weed uh, office in the hallway almost, and Gordy would come with Travis, his grandson, and sit in my office and chit-chat. Can you imagine a rookie coach sitting there with Gordy Howe and chatting about hockey for hours? And then he would go out and practice after our practice with his grandson. Mark sometimes would stay, but usually the practice was so intense. Mark said, I got to go and have a rest, Dad. So, but yeah, I spent a lot of time with Gordy Howell too. And yeah, you can imagine how much I picked his mind about the game and, and, and how to be a great pro. And, and for him to even walk around in the dress room was exciting. Our players, this, this is Gordy Howell. It was unbelievable to have that influence. And, and certainly Mark had the so much and utmost respect for his father. He didn't even want to be mentioned with his father. That's how respectful he was. He said, I, don't even talk to me about, about me being having some of the qualities of my father because it just doesn't happen. So Guy was a tremendous player in the day, and we don't hear his name very often, if, if at all. But Tim Kerr, talk about Tim. Timmy what a was presence in front of the net, eh? He was a mountain of a man and, and power play specialist and score goals by, by putting himself in that high slot and nobody could move him. But again, people would say, you know, what about Keenan? He's so strict with you guys. And he says, look, he knows what I want and I want ice time. And you know what he does? He gives it to me. And you know what I do? I score 70 goals. So no matter how tough he is on us, I like it because we're winning and I'm scoring. And that's what Timmy wanted. So, uh, yeah, he was a, a very important player for us in terms of the production that he could give as an individual. He, made a, he was a big uh, game breaker in terms of scoring goals. And Ed Snyder, the owner, we talked about it last week. It, uh, he'd sort of set the tone that create an NFL-style coaching staff of having more bodies than, than fewer and what was your relationship like with him? Because he just, he bled fire orange, I guess. He did. It was great. And uh, he would come around, he'd come in the, in the win or lose, he'd come to the dressing room after every game when he was in town. And that was most often. Uh, 
the only time I really annoyed him was uh, we were just finished the finals and I had a, a staff meeting to wrap up the season end and he had a party plan that evening and we came a little bit late while well, he was really annoyed. I mean, I said, rightfully so, I should postpone the meeting or stop the meeting, get to the party on time and then go from there. But, you know, uh, he, he really did something that was uh, very uncharacteristic for him. And I don't know how many people know it, but when I was dismissed in Chicago, he reached out and, and I went to his home to have breakfast and he offered me a, a five-year contract to coach and manage the assistant manager and, 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 and director of player personnel for the Flyers. He said, Mike, I made a mistake. I should never have fired you. And so that is something that not a lot of people know about. And uh, that's a big swallow for a man of that elk and, and uh, success that he had that he would, you know, he really aggressively tried to recruit me to come back. So, you know, our relationship was really strong. And, and even though he fired me and I was extremely disappointed and hurt, uh, he recognized that maybe I did bring something to the, to the table for the Philadelphia Flyers. A lot of people have come and gone in that organization, and especially under his stewardship. But it really was a family, wasn't it? He really treated, you know what he did so well? He treated the, the significant others, whether it was girlfriends or wives. Uh, he made sure that they were very comfortable. Uh, he didn't pay the most in the league, but he did make sure it was inclusive. Everybody uh, would join in and we'd have celebrations and parties together and events. And, and he had a great charitable uh, event that the wives really ran was the uh, fight for lives whether uh, flyers wives uh, for cancer it became a huge huge success so he made them feel very much a part of it he would always be buying them gifts and making sure that they were comfortable when the team was focused on winning and traveling a lot and not being around he really did make that part of uh, certainly the the family uh, aspect of being a flyer. So you mentioned him earlier, Pelle Lindbergh, that season, 84-85, becomes the first European to win the Vezina Trophy. The next season in November, he, he passes away. How, I mean, how devastating is that for you as a person and, and, and as a team, and how do you deal with all that? While it was really a devastating uh, uh, situation um, for the team, well-liked and certainly big part of our team and our success. And we still went on, had a strong season. We were on a winning streak at the time and we ended up with 110 points. But, uh, and Bob Throws did as well as he could in goal in the playoffs, but you can't replace a Vezina Trophy winner and, and the grief that we had to go through, I think, also, in the end, it drained the team emotionally. In the end, we didn't have the energy that we had the, the previous spring and the grieving process. Unfortunately, I had some experience doing that. I don't know if it's called experience. I lost my brother. I had several miscarriages with uh, my wife, Rita, at, in, in the late term of, of uh, 
miscarriages to the point in the last month. So um, I had gone through that with the grieving and uh, uh, tried to, to help the players with that process. And, and they were at my home and we'd, we would talk out loud and, and express themselves. And you talked about McCrimmon and, you know, I still remember him crying at the house. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to miss my friend. So, you know, uh, but fortunately uh, we were very, very lucky that Ron Hextel came along and take us to the, uh, the finals again, wins the, the con Smythe and, and on a losing effort. And, and I'm fast forwarding here very quickly, but uh, we recovered, but that was a very tragic, uh, heartfelt, difficult process to go through as a team. Yeah, it would, it would be there every day, wouldn't it? Just hanging over. Absolutely, and, and they dedicated his stall. And every game, home or away, they would hang his jersey in the dressing room. So it was always present in our minds. Yeah. It's amazing that they were able to battle through it the way they did. I guess a lot of it in tribute to him, right? It really was. And when it happened, I really worked them hard. It helped them. It helped them of the emotional roller coaster they were on and the difficulties of processing their grief. So I think it, it was sort of kind of a solace, a place where they could be, where they could concentrate on what they could do best, and that was play hockey and be together as a group. So that was an interesting process to go through. I always remember you telling the story about one of the Canada Cups where Wayne Gretzky was under siege from the media and sponsors and advertisers, but the minute he walked on the ice, that's where he found his calm. I'm sure that was in a different way, obviously, uh, similar for the players in this situation. It really was. The ice. And what you're talking about, the first time that Wayne stood up, it was in the Montreal Forum, and he was just inundated. There was probably 100 media around him or, you know, sponsors and everything. He stood on, his ice, on the ice, and his eyes lit up like that. I said, that's where he's calm. This is where he wants to be. This is where he loves to be. So you could see in the... And he, you know, that's, that, that was a truism. He loved to be on the ice. And likewise, our players loved to be with each other and loved to be on the ice. So it was a great uh, uh, place for them to be uh, in a difficult time in, in terms of the flyer players, play, uh, players and a great place for Wayne to be to get away from all the attraction that he had certainly had deserved and had drawn to himself. Okay. So we'll leave it at that for this week, and uh, we'll pick up next week and talk about that 86-87 team that uh, went seven games into the final with the Edmonton Oilers. Not the right result for you, but uh, another great run, and we'll talk, uh, tell some Ron Hextall stories. I'm sure you got a few of those. <laughs> well, we've got lots of those for our viewers next week, Scott. That'll be fun because the Ronnie stories are as, as charismatic as he was on the ice I got some great stories to tell you for his, uh, for his uh, routine off the ice, if you like. There you go. So there's our tee up for next week. So we invite everybody to come back and uh, we'll be launched on uh, uh, again on Sunday at noon. And uh, we'll be back with more Tales from the Flyers. So uh, everybody uh, enjoy your week and stay safe.